It was a trip to the Andreessen Horowitz office today on break from the RSA conference in San Francisco, California, when I got a chance to sit down and confer with Martin Marty Resch. Marty is most notable for developing the most popular intrusion detection system software in use, Snort. We discuss how he built that project and sold it for nearly $3 billion, how he's pivoted in investing and back again into being the CEO of Notography. We also talked about BYOD's systems, encryption, and how ephemeral systems are all making things more difficult. Lastly, we discussed his sailboat racing experience. And now, here's Martin Resch. Hello and welcome to the Arsenic Show. Today I have with me Martin Risch. How are you? Good, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm gonna call you Marty. That's, yes, I know you too. as Marty. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine, Martin is, you know, that's like, that's the way that I figure out if I've met somebody before or not. If I say Marty, I've probably met them before. <laughs> like, nice to see you again instead of like, good to meet you, which is horribly embarrassing if they're like, oh, don't you remember we had a beer in 2009? Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I mean, you, I'm sure, have a similar problem. You've met probably thousands and thousands and thousands of people, so it's exactly. it's a little rough. <laughs> it, it is. It is. There, you know, there's a lot of repeat offenders who, like, eventually, mm -hmm. like, the, the yeah. bulb in my brain goes on. It's uh -huh. like I know this person. Yeah. But there's a lot of people where I'm just like, oh man. Um, we're at the Andreessen Horowitz office today, um, but because RSA is in town, the RSA Security Conference. Are you looking at anything there? Anything interesting? Do anything there? Well, I'm I'm there, and it's just nonstop meetings for me. So uh -huh. I've been in investor meetings and partner meetings and some media events and some customer stuff and uh, investor dinners and so on and so forth. So oh, fun! Yeah, <laughs> for certain values of fun. Uh huh. Well, I mean, you've. Once upon a time, we were both just a bunch of hackers, and we would just be behind a keyboard all day. But yeah. Something happened. I don't know what it is, but something, something pretty monumental happened. Yeah. Well, I think the uh, the industry started getting monetized, right? So uh -huh. <clears throat> the guys uh -huh. who uh, kind of had it together enough to like go uh, surf that wave, um, mm -hmm. you know, that's us now, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Lucky ducks. Uh, so it would probably be worth talking a little bit about uh, Snort. Uh, kind of the old days. Um, it's how you made your claim to fame, and I think it's really interesting, actually. Mm. Can you tell people what it is uh, for the non-technical types? Oh, sure. So SNORT is a uh, network intrusion detection and prevention technology. So what that means, that's a lot of words to say, it catches hackers on networks. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a piece of software that I started writing in the late 90s, 1998, right at the end of the year. And I released it as an open source project, so I gave it away for free, and it got so popular so quickly um, that you know I started a company around it called Sourcefire, and that uh, turned into a big success story. How did you decide to take, I mean, open source firstly, I, I've got to question that one. Why open source? Why did you decide to give it out? I mean, you could have just kept it, you could have been jealous and yeah. just had it as yours. Like, why? Why did you choose that route? So, you know, um, back in 1998, so, you know, Basically, there was life before Snort and life after Snort. Life before Snort, I was just Joe Blow engineer, and I was learning cybersecurity in the way that I was teaching myself, because you know, in the 90s, you had to teach yourself, uh, was by building tools. I, I remember. Right. <laughs> you were there, remember? You got the gray up here, yeah, yeah. down here. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, you know, I, I was writing my own tools, and I wanted to write a cross-platform packet sniffer, so I started screwing around writing this piece of software that I called S. And um, what? Why S? Because it's a sniffer, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, 
So I, less typing too. Right, less typing. You know, it's like all short names. People uh -huh. used to read my source code. They'd be like, you know, I, I had this thing called IDX, and a lot of my functions, it's like an indexing pointer. And one guy one day was complaining. He's like, IDX stands for I don't explain. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, the uh, um, you know, I decided to release it open source because in 1998. Uh, Linux had kind of emerged from the primordial ooze and was was making a lot of momentum. And there was a lot of, if you remember, like the cathedral and the bizarre writings uh, were out there about uh, um, the model of doing open source and why it's a superior uh, method for getting software out there and having community-driven software as opposed to coming out of the you know software houses and things like that. So I read all the all the rhetoric and I thought, well, you know, maybe it'd be fun to release this thing. Maybe I'll get a few downloads. I'll get a couple of emails. It'll be you know a nice rainy days and weekends project. So mm -hmm. I you know uh, decided <laughs> to release it and then uh, you know thought maybe if I if this thing is really good, maybe a few people will see it and they'll be something I can put on my resume. I wrote this little thing called Snort and you know I had ten users and it was great. Mm -hmm. And I released it and um, you know the first release I got a few emails and then second release a few more and, and you know I ended up doing well the fun thing about it, so I was developing software at that time for, you know, normal professional organizations and it was like there's a process and you get the thing out there and, and I was doing it for the government and um, you know, there'd be like it could be weeks or months before you heard from the customer that you were building software for, and then the open source stuff, you got it out there and you got feedback immediately, and I was like, ooh, it was like catnip. Mm. So I just started doing releases every couple of weeks. I did uh, 23 releases of Snort the first year it was out. Wow. Yeah, so like every two weeks, I was just kicking out another, another version. Wow. And feature. You were doing Agile before this was <laughs> such a thing. Exactly. <laughs> Very trendy. Uh -huh. um, anyway, so yeah, it just took off, and then, you know, uh, 20 months later, I saw a survey from the Sands Institute, uh, which is a big, you know, postgraduate uh, IT training uh, institute. That um, it was uh, a multiple choice question: check all the intrusion detection systems that you use. And Snort was on the list. All the commercial systems were on the list, and it was checked 92% of the time. And I was like, "Wait a second! Wow, I've got a lot of users out there." 92%. Uh, that's when my little evil Grinch brain started saying, "Wait a second! There's like..." There could be money here. If I can figure out how to get people to pay for something that's free, I could, you know, well, turn this into something. Stepping back just a little bit, why a packet sniffer? What was interesting about that specific project? Um, well, it's because you can see how the internet works, right? So you can see the protocols um, flying by on the network, and you know, you could learn the protocols, you could read the, the packets, and really see what was going on. So you know, simple, stupid stuff like you'd see, you know, usernames and passwords or Snoop email and things like that, but you could also like debug problems with software and you could debug problems with the network and you could really fundamentally see uh, how things worked. And if you, um, you know, had uh, exploits, you know, compromise tools and things like that, you could fire them across the network and observe them going by. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you start putting the pieces <coughs> together. Well, if I can see it, if I can figure out a way to get the computer to see it, then that'd be really interesting. Mm -hmm. But Snort was originally written just to uh, monitor my home network while I was at work. So I'd go to work during the day and I was on a cable modem. So, you know, I thought it'd be interesting to just, you know, record all the traffic that's coming to my network when I'm not using it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did that. And then very quickly I was like, oh, that's interesting. I, w I would like, a, you know, a notification whenever this kind of thing shows up or that kind of thing shows up. Mm -hmm. And that started kind of the, the drumbeat. Were you able to find net new export or from your perspective, new exploits that other people were using, you're like, ah, that's the thing that they're doing that are compromising things. Were you just logging everything or was it entirely signature-based at the beginning? Or Oh yeah, it was entirely 
signature based. Um, mm -hmm. I, at first, I was logging everything. It was just you could use it as a sniffer or a packet logger. Right. So if you've ever looked at the Snort documentation, there's this um, getting started file uh, that's in there uh, called usage. That's essentially it's a thing that I wrote a long time ago. And it talks about the, the three core modes of Snort. One is packet sniffer. It'll just dump the packets to the screen. And you can see them going by. Number two, the Extremely second, useful for debugging. It, right, exactly. <laughs> right, because I wrote it for me <laughs> to debug software. Um, and then uh, number two was packet logger, so you could record the packet dumps to disk. Uh, and then number three was intrusion detection mode, and that's mm -hmm. what Snort became uh, famous for. Um, but yeah, for me, I was using it for any, anything I wanted to do for looking at network traffic, and I was just fascinated by how networks worked. Like, my background's in computer engineering, so um, for me, it was this complex system, and I really wanted to understand it, and then, you know, you could see these attacks going by. So, um, you know, we didn't so much find new attacks and things like that, but you could start recognizing the, f the fingerprints of tools on the network by looking through the traffic dumps things like that, scanners and exploitation tools and toolkits and things like that. You could see it like once you knew what you were looking at. I mean, at. eventually that is what they ended up using was something just like that to identify, oh, this is a weird anomalous packet. I don't, I don't recognize this. Why, why are these weird flags turned on? Oh, yeah. you know, and then yeah. that's so anomalous it was, it's worth digging into and trying to figure out what it is. Yeah. Um, so why then, if you were on this open source kick, did you decide, well, I want to close source that again, or <laughs> I want uh, to bring it all back? Well, I didn't close source it. I left it open. Snort's still open and free to download yeah, today. Yeah, but you, I mean, you but went. I commercialized you, it. Well, yeah, so yeah. that's different. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not confuse, you know, selling with yeah. installing, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> so the, the thing was is that it, there came a point where I was working on Snort so much um, so on the back of Snort, I got recruited to go work at a startup. I worked at that startup for almost a year. The startup kind of fell apart, and I left. And I, when I came out, uh, I told the world, you know, the Snort mailing list, my world, um, that uh, I wasn't working at this company anymore, and, you know, uh, email me here. And everybody knew what that meant. So, like, Marty's mm -hmm. on the street. So all of a sudden, mm -hmm. I had a lot of job offers in my hand, and I had to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. And um, so I had options to go to other companies. I actually had one company try to buy Snort uh, from me and hire mm -hmm. me on. Uh, and then I... How, how much for it? Do you remember? Um, it, was, uh, it was like a quarter million dollars in 1990, no, in 2000. Um, I mean, that's a good walking around. Quarter million, money. yeah, plus like a million dollars worth of stock. But that company never really got right. Did well, right. so well. That's because they didn't have snort. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I was looking at all that. And I was like, well, I could go do any of these things. But the thing that I learned working at the startup was, if you really want to make money in the startup game, you've got to be one of the first ten employees, hmm. and you know. You could also just start your own company, and you know there's there's a whole spectrum of you know success and failure uh, that you can uh, potentially achieve <laughs> on that hmm. journey. So I started kicking around ideas for. Well, if I wanted to get people to pay me money for this, you know, how do I get people to pay for something that's free? Mm -hmm. um, and I want to keep it free. Like, I want people to continue to use it for free. Uh, I've got this great community of enthusiastic users, so I want to keep all that. But I want to also have the ability to, to monetize on the people um, who have kind of these deeper problems that uh, we get into. And, and what I kind of observed by interacting with Snort users and things like that and seeing the, the tools that were being written kind of uh, as uh, uh, helpers for Snort and things like that was that um, Snort on the small scale solved problems. So you could download Snort, get it 
up and running and detect hackers breaking into your network. And you could deploy two or three of them, and it was you know, kind of something that a single human being could do. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you tried to scale it, store it on the large scale, it caused problems. And the problems that it were causing were different than the ones that it solved. And the ones that it were causing were essentially issues around manageability, scalability, performance, automation, and support. Yeah, it was a, it was a job creator. Right, exactly. And I was like, <laughs> you know what? You could get people to pay for those five things, manageability, scalability, performance, automation, and support, while leaving it open. So you get the enthusiastic community, but you build a framework around it that can go to the people who have the scaling problem. Oh, those guys are large enterprises. Mm -hmm. We have lots of money. Mm -hmm. And right now, they're using all the commercial solutions that are out there, like from Cisco and ISS and things like that. And I was like, I think you could make money doing this. Mm -hmm. So I decided I was going to build a company to do it. Was this before or after Red Hat? Because um, they have kind of a similar model. It's like it's an open source. You can download. Anyone can use it. but. Yeah, do you really want to be doing that when you're at enterprise level? Like, right. you, really, you need the support. And the yeah, so Red Hat was selling more of a services model, whereas I was actually doing a product, like a we're building hardware mm. uh, product for you. So it wasn't. So what was different than um, Red Hat's kind of revenue model and things like that? I'm a guy who likes to build products, so I was like, how could I turn this into a product company? And you know, what I came to find was nobody had really. Uh, Pulled that off before, mm. uh, and also um, the the you know gathered intelligence of all the very experienced people that I talked to about building software companies thought it was a really bad idea. <laughs> Did they? Oh yeah. <laughs> like I was I was not celebrated for bringing this idea to market originally. People were like, "This is stupid. That'll never work. Nobody's going to pay for stuff that's free, Marty." Um, so the punchline of this joke is then Cisco acquired uh, your company. Yes. For two point seven billion dollars. Yeah, that's a lot of cabbage. So not two hundred and fifty thousand or whatever it was, uh, <laughs> a couple orders of magnitude larger. Yeah. Um, firstly, is that a little bit of you know egg on their face? Do you feel like no one really saw what you saw? I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, well, a lot of a lot of people didn't, as you said, they didn't celebrate your idea, and clearly they were the ones who were wrong. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's a new idea. Can you get people to, you know, is there that pent-up demand for the, the five things that are external to the process? Can you do, you know, it's called the open core model now. Can you do the open core model in a way that's, for me, uh, as I was thinking about it, ethical to the user base of all the people who built the notoriety and the popularity of Snort, while at the same time serving a, a real need that customers have? I'm not just charging rent. I'm actually bringing, you know, value-add to the, to the product. Yeah. And um, and a lot of it, what I think today, uh, what a lot of it, you know, the reason for kind of the poo-pooing was that um, most people didn't have the opportunity to think about it for long periods of time. You get struck in the face with, here's a, a, a new idea. And you're either kind of prepared for it or you're not. And if you're not prepared for it, it sounds weird and, y you know, one of the things that I think is uniquely available to young people kind of in their 20s and early 30s is the ability to focus on you know, uh, problems for long periods of time mm. that really unlocks your ability to, to really deeply consider a problem that you want to solve and come up with a real solution for it. And it gets rarer and rarer as you get older because, of course, your career and family and all the other stuff start taking up all your time. So your ability to set aside an entire weekend so you can sit there and mull over, can I get people to pay money for a free thing? Well, if I did this, this, and this, you know, stack those up and then mull it over in your head and, and look at the problem from a lot of angles and then be able to um, 
you know, consider the pros and cons and things like that. I like to think about things for a very long time before I pull the trigger on them, but when I do pull the trigger, I have thought about them for a very long time. So mm -hmm. like, I've got a whole thesis and I've got a whole model that I've already baked up. So then I go to a guy who's been working in Silicon Valley for 20 years and I say, hey, I wanna do this. And it's like, it's an idea that nobody else has really pulled off or tried before. And they hear it and they're like, well, that's dumb. Why, why, why wouldn't you do it this way? This is like the whole the way the whole world's been working for decades. So mm -hmm. just do it that way. I was like, well, no, no. I've got, you know, because I got this free thing and I want people to want to buy it. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really consider it to be like an egg on your face. I mean, some of, some of the potential investors maybe could have had a little more uh, imagination, mm -hmm. but um, I think a lot of people have, tr unless you're in the business of like recognizing new, net new ideas for kind of their potential for brilliance, which is kind of the, the venture capital world, uh, or, you know, or failure, uh, mm -hmm. which is the other extreme. <laughs> Spectacular uh, failure. Uh, right, exactly, <laughs> cratering. Um, <laughs> Yeah, unless there you're somewhere uh, beyond zero. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, is it going to be like this or is it going to be like this, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, unless you're like in that business, I think it's pretty hard to recognize when there is a, a, a new and, and really kind of um, useful idea that's, that's emerged, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't blame people. I mean, you know, I had the unfair advantage of having thought about what this way I was going to solve this thing for literally months yeah. um, before I brought it up to everybody. <clears throat> that's a funny thing. I've never heard anyone say this before, and I... I I did the exact same thing, and some people were like, "Oh, you must be so cool in your house, with all these screens everywhere." What you know, picture hacker layer or whatever. And I'm like, if you were to come into my office on an average day, I'm probably staring at the wall doing literally nothing, <laughs> um, because what I'm actually doing is this massive architectural thing in my head, or I'm trying to fit all these pieces together. And some of it might be business issues, or legal issues, yeah. or sales issues, or whatever. But it's like, it all stems from some technology decision that you're going to have to make somewhere way upstream. And and you can really screw these things up, so you kind of have to think through the whole, the whole thing. And uh, and so I might spend ten times the amount of time thinking about something as I actually do hands on keyboard. Like it's right. not very dramatic. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not. Yeah, it's not like you know the in the movies with like the screens of code no. flying by and stuff like that. It's like you're just sitting there like, hmm. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I have the screens that do the crazy things, but they're un they're illegible. You know, you right. have you still have to have some some sense on top of all of that, you know? Yeah, so. yeah you know, I, I, it's funny, I, I, I claim it and it's true, I do a lot of my best thinking like in the shower. Mm -hmm. no, me when, too. when you're, you're on autopilot basically and it frees you up to Yeah, and the white noise, it really there. helps. Yeah. I think, um, I wanna say it was Kissinger maybe, uh, I can't remember, uh, used to, Used to sit in a bathtub with a with a fan in the bath, which sounds very dangerous. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, for the white noise, uh, okay. and he he thought I'm pretty sure it's Kissinger. Ah, it's one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but I like that uh, concept in general of spending the necessary time to actually think through things because so many people are snap decisions, and sometimes that is useful, but other times it's just a bad idea. You got to really think things through. Yeah. So when when was that acquired? Uh, 2013. Okay, yep. so exactly 10 years earlier, mm -hmm. um, I remember seeing a report from Gartner that said that the IDS is dead. Right. So, what I, do you think about that? I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Allow me to retort. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a uh, that was an interesting period. We uh, we we duked it out with them, kind of in public, which was maybe in retrospect not the best idea. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's like you're taking food out of my children's mouths was my mm -hmm. problem, yeah. and they're like, no, we think your technology is dead. It's like. Um, yeah, and it was, and, and they kind of took it on the, you know, they, they took their the show on the road, and I was like, yeah. I, I, I'm not, 
I'm not going to let this lie. Uh, so, um, and they were they were a little right, but you know the, the interesting thing about it is so when they said that intrusion detection is dead, and then they laid out their reasoning. It was almost like you know a doctor laying out a list of the symptoms, but not being able to name the disease. And the disease was really that we were operating uh, intrusion detection technologies um, in these kind of context-free environments, and human beings were supposed to provide the context. So context in this case means uh, stuff like you know when you have an intrusion detection system, the way these things work. I mean, they're incredibly sophisticated computer science constructs on the one hand, but on the other hand, the way that they're operated is like caveman stuff. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, okay, we have 50,000 things that we can detect. Please select what you would like to detect. Okay, great. Well, there's no assistant for that. Right. You just have to sit there on this one and that one and that one, or maybe this pack and things like that, or it's right. Microsoft Tuesday, so here's the Microsoft Tuesday rules. and. Um, that is really terrible. So what ends up happening is people just turn everything on, and then you get this deluge of noise that comes out of the system. Mm -hmm. So the I, rem I remember that deluge. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, and I'm, par I'm partially to blame because I also, you know, I built the caveman yeah. technology, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, the the problem that you run into is that, or, or the way to solve it essentially is to contextualize the environment. So tell me what I've got and how it should be defended, and then. If I can do that in an automated fashion with, I don't know, software, uh, then you can all of a sudden start auto-selecting what you feel like you should run. And when an event comes out of the system, then you can do this kind of frontline thing that a human would normally do, which is the ans answer the question, how much do I care about this event versus these 45 events? Um, and the way that a human does it is they look at the event, and they look at what it happened to, and then they figure out, can that thing be vulnerable to this attack? No. Now I've got you know mm -hmm. 44 to go, right. mm -hmm. so you can do that with the technology too. So you can characterize everything, what it can and cannot be vulnerable to, uh, instead of what it is and that's, isn't. That's smart, right? Yeah. So is and isn't versus can and cannot is a very different proposition. And what that means functionally is I can use this as a pre-filter to get rid of everything that you can't possibly be affected by. So we invented that at uh, Sourcefire. And, but, um, but you could still be alerted if you felt like it. Yeah, the alerts were still there. We would just contextualize them. So we would set what we call impact flags and say, you know, if it's impact one, you care about this. If it's impact two, we think that you can't possibly be vulnerable to it. <coughs> so, but I mean, it's, it's useful information to know <clears throat> that you're under attack, even if it's not vulnerable, because, yeah, they're not going to succeed this time, but, but maybe next time. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of background radiation on the internet, though. Don't forget yeah, all, yeah, all yeah. this kind of automated stuff just floating around out there. Yes. Yep. So that I mean, noise, people don't tune it out. I think it's like one and a half seconds before you'll get compromised if you have an unpatched box on the public internet or right. something like that. Yep. Um, that's pretty crazy. Um, so my part in this story, um, because I am always a part of these stories in some weird way, I was my very first time being a product manager and my boss, his name is Chris Richter, awesome dude, I love this guy, kind of my mentor, he basically said, hey Robert, uh, you go handle Gartner. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know who you're talking about or what, and he's just figure it out. <laughs> and so I got a hold of Gartner and they're like, you should go to this Gartner conference or whatever. And I had never been to a Gartner conference, know nothing about it, so I show up and I, I don't know, I'm probably 23 or something, no business at all telling business leaders what to do with their lives. But I was a security guy, and like I like tech, right? <clears throat> so they threw me in this room with, I don't know, I was probably the only person in my 20s there, let's put it that way. <laughs> like everybody there was in their 40s, 50s, and on, and on up. 
And Richard Steinen, who did that article, uh, was there. And I, I saw him, and I'm like, I kind of recognized the name. I didn't know, I'd never met him before. I'm like, oh, you're the guy who wrote that, that thing about IDS. I'm like, I, I tend to disagree. He's like, why? And he like, he kind of cornered me. He's like, why do you think that? And I'm like, well, it's kind of a complicated thing. Yeah, it would probably take a while to explain. And he's like, no, let's go sit down. <laughs> he literally got me and sat me down. And I'm just like, oh shit, maybe I said the wrong thing. Maybe I should <laughs> just get my mouth shut. Yeah. I'm like, well, I, you know, I think that, you know, it, even if you wanted to claim it's dead, you're, you're taking it out of context of where you can add it into SIMS and all this security information management systems where it might be completely unuseful with its context, but once you add these other contexts, it becomes really useful. Right. Um, so even if you wanted to claim it, it's dead, I still don't think you could because it's gonna play a part in all this other stuff and I would never get rid of it because of that fact. <clears throat> Explained all the technology and why and examples of where you could use it and stuff and, and he's like, yeah, I had never thought about any of that. And so I'm like, well, that's not a good first impression of Gartner. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's the difference between having operational experience and not. And a lot of places yeah. didn't like didn't have very advanced programs, so they had all these IDSs out there that were just noisemakers. And and you know, I can see where he's coming from, but he um, the, just the, the the nuance was lost. And in response to SourceFire, we invented a whole new technology that would auto-contextualize the network environment and get rid of false positives and things like that. So we really boosted intrusion detection, but at the same time, we went out and built intrusion prevention technology as well. And then you know, we duked it out in the industry for a few years and eventually rose to the top. What do you think about like security orchestration and automation response as it relates to all this? Because here's why, here's the genesis of this question. I'm seeing more and more um, builds where if something bad happens, they don't care. They right. just blow it away and, and rebuild it. And they don't even really have, let alone IDSs, they don't really have any kind of security. They didn't even have firewalls. They just have open ports and that is it. Wow. Um, they have like two open ports, maybe. 80 and 443, right. maybe 80. <laughs> right. um, so like, where does, where does all that kind of, kind of come together? Yeah, well, so, you know, so we're trying to automate the orchestration of the security infrastructure to respond in the face of like you know whatever event you think is is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we did a lot of pioneering work on intrusion detection and prevention technology back in the SourceFire days, and there was like an eighty twenty principle of the people who would turn on actual blocking versus not, right? So like 80% of customers wouldn't turn on any blocking at all under any circumstances, right. despite the fact that it's Microsoft Tuesday and you've got you know just a straight up buffer, you know, UDP buffer overflow out there and we can detect it and block it with 100% accuracy. They're like, eh, we're not comfortable with that. Yeah, and they wouldn't turn it on. Because they're worried that it's gonna break other things. Right, it's, you know, it's shut production. down the, the CEO's email or you know, right. knock over some database or something like that. So they wouldn't turn it on. So uh, one of the uh, guys that I worked with at SourceFire, who then went on uh, to Phantom Cyber, one of the first sort companies, he, you know, he, sa he said basically like hardly any of our customers actually had automated response turned on ever. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a big trust issue, and the trust issue is there because once again, it all gets back to contextualizing the events. Like these events show up, and they try to connect the dots so they can automate the response but there's an element of doubt in the organizations that are uh, running it or a lack of sophistication uh, or a lack of process to be able to curate the system properly so they just leave it in notify mode and they never get to the actual response side of it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's, a, it's good tech, it's like it's a good approach, like mm -hmm. it's the right idea. 
Uh, but I think operationally, the way that it gets used, it's not realizing kind of its potential. Yeah, and maybe there's people are just allergic to the idea. It's just not, uh, they're not comfortable with it. Well, it goes all the way, you know, a thousand years ago, we made our IDSs talk to checkpoint firewalls, and, you know, people would turn it on for five minutes, and the false positives would, like, blow up the firewall config, and they'd turn it off and never turn it on again, right? right. So, you know, it's like Battlestar Galactica. Don't trust the machine. Right. <laughs> <clears throat> well, and there's a lot of sense to that. Um, I, I ran into a similar problem with uh, WordPress. I, I was talking with some of the very high-placed WordPress people, and like, well, how many WordPress installs have the automated um, stuff turned on, all the automatic updates? And uh, they're like, maybe a fraction of 1%. Yep. Maybe. Um, and they'd be surprised if it was even 0.01%. Yeah. Uh, like, it's very, very, very low. And I'm like, why? why? It's so weird. It's so easy to turn it on, and... There really is no breakage. I mean, it doesn't really do that anymore. I mean, once upon a time, maybe that was a little sketchy, but now, unless you're doing something very weird on your side, you're going to be fine. And just people are allergic to it. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, it's a behavioral thing. It's, you know, people get used to doing things one way, and then when you try to change them, like, people do not like change. One mm -hmm. of the, you know, sold Sourcefire for almost $3 billion, and, like, you know, there are a bunch of people who are like, why did you do that? I really like working here. I don't, <laughs> don't want to work for this big company. <laughs> Wanted to hold out for four. Is that what right. they wanted? <laughs> it's like, but we can all buy, you know, yeah. Maseratis or whatever. You know, it's like, but like, you know, this is a great outcome by any measure. This is like, yeah, uh, a, a great outcome. Absolutely. And people are like, but I, you know, I like this culture. I like how we do things here. I like, you know, this is the place that I love working. So, mm -hmm. why would we change that <laughs> even yeah. for a gigantic, uh, you know, sum of money? Well, there's some sense to that. I mean, if you yeah. there's. I mean, how much would you pay to have the the best culture in the world? You know, so yeah. Well, it's a it, it's an interesting point. Um, you know, like under what conditions do you do you you know make a decision to pull the trigger on something like that? Because you're changing a lot of people's lives, both positive and negative. Like <laughs> positively, the financial windfall and, and things like that. And negatively. Uh, the change in kind of their working life and whether or not they uh, last at the new organization. <laughs> I thought Cisco was actually a, a good home for SourceFire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, in terms of, you know, decent cultural match and like Cisco's a very nice company to work for. They're very good to their people. There's only going to be one of them or Checkpoint or one of the similar big firewall companies that's the yeah. actual home. Yeah, exactly. So it made a lot of sense uh, for a lot of reasons. And there were, you know, there were some competitive pressures that were kind of weighing on us at the time. We were a public company. Palo Alto and FireEye were both, uh, um, you know, coming roaring out of the gates, and they had just tremendous amount of financial backing and no mm -hmm. expectations of profitability anytime. And right. like, we're a public company, like there are expectations. Right. So like, <laughs> our ability to free up cash flow to be able to, uh, you know, fight this two front war was complicated, mm -hmm. and you know, it was things like that. And it, the Cisco thing just made a ton of sense. So what about things like uh, DPI and encrypted traffic, and how, do, how does that all kind of play into your world? Yeah, well, so that's, that's, uh, that's a complicated topic, all right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, obviously did a lot of work in DPI. That was kind of my, my claim to fame for um, a couple of decades. Um, but we did start recognizing, even before Sourcefire got picked up by Cisco, there was kind of a storm on the horizon, and there's, there's a, a, a two problems that have been coming down the pipe that are getting harder and harder to ignore now. One is how uh, corporate networks are kind of dispersing to the cloud. So this is kind of gets to what we talk about in photography these days. But dispersion is a real problem. Uh, 
from a from a DPI standpoint, uh, because the way DPAC and inspection works is you've got to be in a place on a network where you can inspect the traffic going back and forth. And if the network spreads across, you know, multiple cloud providers and multiple physical locations, you've got a real problem deploying actual sensing capability where you need it. Uh, you've also got a problem if you need to have uh, this capability uh, with the femoral workloads and things like that getting you know, capability when you need it. So where you need it, when you need it, turn into a real problem. And then, especially now, encryption is a bigger and bigger problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a hassle, like 10 years ago it was a hassle. We had SSL decryptors and things like that that we could put out there. Five years ago, more of a hassle. Today, a huge problem. Mm. Because in the cloud, for example, if you want to decrypt SSL traffic, you either have to be on the workload itself and instrument that thing with an agent, or um, you have to pay the computational cost, which is hefty, to be able to uh, break the crypto or do all the key management, and then you've got privacy uh, and um, compliance issues that you've got, got to deal with and things like that. To be able to inspect this traffic stream that you know 99.999% of it is not going to have anything interesting right. in it, right? Yeah. So these twin problems are um, kind of the, um, where things are going, right? So things are going more and more to the cloud, although on-prem is not going away, and we've seen it over and over again in major enterprises, especially where you know you have some companies that are born in the cloud, but like major banks and other um, you know big organizations with big deployed fielded stuff like retail or aerospace or whatever, these are never going to be 100% cloud companies. And the the security tooling isn't keeping up with the architecture, basically. They have some cloud stuff, or maybe they even have a lot of cloud stuff, but they've got security architectures that were imagined t literally 20 plus years ago, which is appliances with central managers and license keys and software that has to be curated and updated and policy managers and all this stuff, and now it's Microsoft Tuesday and you know, the donuts must, uh, you know, mm -hmm. have time to make the, the donuts, right? Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, the architecture that we've been imagining or, and building for the last 25-ish years doesn't really work with the way networks are operating anymore. Um, and there's been a lot of, uh, people aren't moving the ball forward. That's basically why I started working again. Um, after I left Cisco, I you know, took a year off, then the pandemic hit, and eventually I got uh, asked to come run this company. And one of the things that got me off the couch basically was Nobody, like the architecture of networks has changed and nobody's moving the ball forward on the security architectures to match. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that's what. Well, how did it all play in the COVID time frame? I mean, everything just, we oh, once yeah. sort of had a network, kind of, and now it's just, boosh, it's yeah. everywhere. <laughs> well, you know, remember almost exactly three years ago, so it's March 2020, we're all hanging out, everybody's seeing the stuff on the news like, this going to be a problem, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, everybody go home. <laughs> everybody go home, just get your job done, do what you got to do, we'll be back in two weeks. And then two weeks was like, actually six weeks, and then so actually six months. Mm -hmm. So people just kept getting their job done, and they just stood up infrastructure wherever they needed it, whenever they needed it. And, you know, one of my favorite CISO quotes since I started working again is, uh, you know, this guy said, the only thing that keeps me up at night is I got a thousand developers working from home and they all have credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> so they've got all this stuff that's everywhere and like they've really poor understanding in a lot of cases of exactly what they've got and what it's doing. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so, and it, my opinion, it is a total artifact of the pandemic. And now you can't put, you know, the toothpaste doesn't go back in the tube. People are trying to get their hands around it, but like identifying what have I got, what is it doing, how's it changing, who owns it, um, you know, do I actually have my hands around everything that is being used for this corporate 
you know, this enterprise network. You, you don't. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, I almost don't care who you are, you, you don't. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a major uh, problem. And, um, you know, I, I kind of saw it and I, I looked around the security industry, of which I've been a member for, you know, 20 something years, and I saw zero motion <laughs> towards dealing with the problem that people actually have now. And a lot of, you know, admitting you've got a problem is the first step at, you mm -hmm. know, getting past it. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, admitting that our architectures don't really fit with modern network um, deployments and operation uh, is not something that a lot of companies want to hear because you know the big companies all have deployed sunk cost architectures that they would like the world to work with forever and all they're doing is you know retrofitting and, and uh, kind of chicken wire and duct taping solutions together to, to keep it going as long as they can mm -hmm. until a disruptor shows up and basically Sweeps them, you know, sweeps those approaches away. You're side. preaching the choir. I mean, the entire purpose of my previous company, Bit Discovery, now now been purchased by Tenable, uh, was finding all those weird assets that people don't know they have. And mm. and every once in a while, you run into somebody who really believes they've got a handle on it. They're really like, no, I understand my network, and and you know, I I have every reason to believe they've done a lot of work. And so it's not like it's not like a completely unjustified feeling. I'm like, okay, if I believed you, which I still don't, but if I believed that you had a really good handle on your network, I still don't believe that the company you're going to acquire tomorrow, you have a good handle on them. And so once you think about the world in that context, uh, like now it's a different ballgame. You just don't get to choose what your architecture looks like. You inherit what you inherit. And you could fix it slowly over time, but you're not going to just rip and replace overnight. you got to yeah. be careful, otherwise you're just... A, break everything. Right, exactly. Yeah, everybody's, you know, this infrastructure, like people, there's dependencies built on it. One of the points that I make when I'm talking about kind of, we call this the atomization of the network. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about this. Yeah. So one of the points that I like to make is not only did everything disperse, but then everybody started building dependencies between all of it, right? So it's not like I'm just going to go stand up my app over here. You know, I've been set loose and my job is get this app up, so I'm working on it. But also, by the way, the database that I'm leveraging for this app to work is actually still in the on-prem environment. I'll just connect them and we'll figure it out later because I'm just getting my job done. Mm -hmm. So all these dependencies get built and then what happens? Well, now it's like, okay, we got to unwind all these dependencies to be able to change how we're doing things. And of course, you know, that's, it's a mess. that's not happening anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> I mean, so the way I see it, I work largely in the web side of the world, mm -hmm. mostly network, um, but we, we, we're bedfellows, you know, we hang right. out. Uh, it would be like the APIs. It seems like to me the APIs are the one thing that it just seems like no one's got any sort of handle on at all. Like we, we connect to this API over here. I'm like, okay, well, what is that API? Well, it says that it does this. Okay, do you have any proof that it does that? Uh, what happens if it goes down? What happens if it gives you bad data? What happens if it goes up and down randomly? Like, you know, what, what sort of monitoring do you have around this API? Uh, how do you handle the credentials? Do you roll your credentials? How do you roll your credentials? And just you start asking any questions about APIs and people go, whoa, 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 whoa. It's just an API, buddy. <laughs> like, you just, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I like the API. <laughs> It's like you need an entire architecture around your API, and everyone just all they do is call a curl script, and that's and that's done, and right. that's the end of the story. And they just expect it's always going to be there, it's always going to be up. And I think that's the, literally the last time anyone ever thinks about that API, and it's unless something bad happens. Until it breaks, right? Until it breaks. So I think you're spot on. I think this this is a really 
intricate web that we've created, no pun intended, it's not the, the interweb, but it's, it's some weird, just everything's sort of touching each other in very dangerous ways that we just haven't spotted yet. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, like the amount that people don't know about their networks, I mean, you know, we go into environments where it's like, uh, so, so, you know, in photography, we're doing flow analysis. So mm -hmm. it, it's a extremely low touch, yeah. frictionless kind of thing that yeah. we're doing. And I'm, I'm not necessarily promoting that approach, but what we see when we go places and we just start looking at like, what is actually going on in this environment? Like, what have I got? What is it doing? It's like, well, you you got a bunch of Bitcoin mining going on over here. People Oof. are like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Like, you're not supposed to find that. <laughs> the one guy's over there sweating. No surprise. <laughs> That's not worth anything anymore anyway. Right. Uh, but, okay, so tell me about notography. Like, how did that all come to be? You were an investor at one point, right? Uh, yeah, I was an investor. I was an early advisor to the team there. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of interesting backstory uh, here because uh, it actually... The, the idea for netography, in my mind, stretches back all the way to the Sourcefire days when I started thinking about this problem of, hey man, like networks are, are moving to the cloud, but they're actually, they're like di dispersing, so I still have on-prem, but I also have cloud, and now encryption's becoming more of a problem, things like that. So I started thinking about approaches to solve that problem all the way back in the, you know, the, the misty days of the early 2010s, mm -hmm. and um, then, uh, you know, Cisco acquisition happened, and I went there and did the chief architect thing and was doing, uh, you know, trying to come up with a unified architecture for Cisco, which is always a hilarious uh, yeah, project. <laughs> um, and then, Just when you think you got it nicked, there's another product. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, anyway, um, I eventually left there and, you know, took some time off, and then I got, uh, um, you know, pandemic hit, so everybody's sitting around, you know, on their couch in their sweatpants, like mm -hmm. tapping away on their laptops and stuff like that. And I was advising these startups, including Notography. And they eventually got to the point where they were ready to go to market and they asked me if I'd like to come run the show. And um, So what, what, what brought your eye to them specifically? Uh, so uh, an inv a mutual investor uh, connected us uh, originally. Um, but the idea that they were working on essentially so all the way back into the like you know 2009 2010 time frame, I started to see kind of the effects of encryption, and now people are moving workloads to the cloud and stuff like that. So how am I going to do intrusion detection stuff in the cloud? Well, I can't really run packet sniffers or inline or do decryption in the clouds. So that's not great, you know. So like there were yeah, these problems that were stacking up, and I was like, hmm. How, I mean, how do you even do that with serverless compute? I mean, like, what, oh, does, yeah, that, what totally. does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's all sorts of problems. S3 buckets, what is it? How are you going to do that? Oh, yeah, I know. So I started looking at it and started, you know, trying to imagine, like, if I wanted to be able to uh, have a kind of a multi-mode capability where it didn't matter if you were in the cloud or on-prem, what would that look like? And, and my conclusion was you would have to do metadata analysis, and the only metadata sources out there that's real-time mm -hmm. uh, outside of packets themselves is NetFlow data, and there have been there have been a bunch of NetFlow companies in the security industry sure or around enough. it over the decades, um, but it, none of them have been like this, like really head and shoulder uh, success. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, uh, NetFlow is relatively um, low fidelity data source all by itself, uh, and we didn't have the context models um, back then that we have now. We didn't have cloud resources to be able to build cloud scale analytics. Uh, or ingest and things like that. So a lot of the precursor technologies uh, to the approach of using metadata 
they were the right idea, but the technology platforms weren't kind of evolved enough to really uh, do it at the scale that you needed to do it, have it uh, largely usable by any enterprise, uh, as opposed to just the ones that were the most switched on that had the capacity to implement this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so there, there was kind of that stuff. There was also, I, I, I was really interested in how cloud EDR technologies worked. So this, there is a reason, a method to my madness here. So uh, we bought a company called Immunet at Sourcefire, and Immunet uh, was, uh, was a cloud EDR. So the way it worked is you have an agent that rides on your device, it collects metadata about the processes that are uh, running on the device, ships them up to a cloud detection backend, that's where the actual magic happens, and if it sees something that's interested in, it signals back down to the agent and says, oh, don't let that process run, or you know, whatever. Hmm. So the cool thing about it, you know, in the old days we had to move definitions down to desktops, and then the definitions had to be updated every day for the new viruses that are coming out and things like that. Well, in this model, it was like, you don't have to do any of that. I can update the cloud once. My entire deployed global footprint across all of my customers is protected simultaneously. That's really powerful, right? Yeah. So the engineer in me is like, if I wanted to, how, could I do that on the network? Is there a way, like, how would I do that? If I wanted to do that function on the network, what would it look like? And once again, it was like, it's got to be metadata because I can't ship all the packets up to a cloud backend. I have to have information about the communications on the network, but not the communications themselves. And I need to wrap it with context because that's the only way to enrich the data sufficiently. And I was like, that would be really cool. We should build that. And then we didn't. <laughs> and then we didn't build it at Cisco either. And then Bear and Dan, the guys who built Natography, without ever talking to me, built it themselves. Mm -hmm. And then we got connected. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You guys are you know, on the right path. And then they asked me to run it. I was like, well, of course. Oh. Yeah. So you just volunteered. You're like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. I mean, it took you know, a little bit of going around. But obviously, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I had, to, I had to look at it. I was like, what are we going to compete with? And this is a pretty different approach. And uh -huh. is the market ready for it? You know, you got to ask yourself all those questions. But I sat there and I thought about it for uh -huh. a few months. And then I was like, <laughs> yeah, we can do this. <laughs> so uh, how does it sort of differ from other NetFlow data? Is it just that it's got this better enrichment layer? Is that the major feature? or? So it's pure cloud. There's no, no hardware or software to deploy. Mm -hmm. um, so it's SaaS play. It has uh, a very, um, you know, it has a SaaS licensing model. So we license by the uh, rate at which you ingest flow data and how long you want to keep it around for. Uh, and what that means practically is if you want to stand up additional capability elsewhere in your network, you can just do it. You don't have to call us. There's no license keys. There's no management infrastructure to integrate with. There's no policies to push. You just spin up your, um, your data source and you're up and running. So it's really cool and flexible because you can stand up. Well, especially because you don't know what your traffic is going to be from minute to minute. You have no idea. Oh, right, exactly. Or you could have an incident in some part of the network that you haven't instrumented yet, and you're like, ooh, man, I really need to see what's going on over there. Just point the data sources at notography, and away we go. And you can be up literally in, in minutes. If you know you got the passwords, the right things to mm -hmm. turn on flow, that's, that's really all that's required. So yeah. you start seeing what's going on. So um, that's really powerful. Uh, it, it doesn't care what environment it's operating within, so it can be uh, applied equally to IT, OT, and cloud environments. It has a uh, one language across all those environments, so we call it write once, detect everywhere. Um, so it, it's really a powerful way of doing it, and then the user interface on it is built with, you know, out of the box. It's not like your classic internet security, you know, web-based spreadsheet like most products. Mm -hmm. This has graphs, it's got dashboard builders, you can uh, use the language that the system has to 
um, to find any kind of views who want to get into the data. It's got pivots and all sorts of stuff. So you can mine through absolutely huge data sets really quickly. So the, the cool thing about it is that I can get visibility into my environment so I can understand what I've got, what it's doing, and what's happening to it across any environment that I've got. It treats my entire network as a composite of its parts instead of, well, that's the OT mm -hmm. group stuff, and this is the Treat IT stuff, and this is the cloud. You know, well, this is AWS, and that's Azure, and we have different teams and different tools for all of those, and if there's an incident, then we'll get them all in a room, and we'll try to figure out what happened. Mm -hmm. This is, now we treat it all the same. We see it all the same. So it's really, um, <coughs> I want, you know, is it a different approach? It, it's a different approach architecturally um, and how it's uh, built to go about its business, but I think it is the approach for, you know, what we call these atomized networks because it doesn't care what your network looks like. It works the same everywhere and it works on any network, cloud and on-prem, at the same time with one view across all of it. So it's, you know, uh, we feel it's a pretty radical departure from what's come before. Uh, and it gets away from deep packet inspection. It doesn't care about encryption. Um, you know, it's where you need it when you need it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we're easy to work with. So one of the things that a couple of my security friends have been talking about a lot is just reducing dwell time. Mm. Like it really doesn't matter how you find it. It doesn't matter really when you find it, as long as basically the second it is found, they get kicked off the network. And ideally, the second they get caught is pretty early, mm. so they don't get a chance to get footholds and start pivoting around and doing all the bad things they're gonna do once they get access to the bad things. Right. So do you have any sort of idea and success stories and like how you guys are managing that or trying to push in that direction or? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> you know, the way our technology works, so we're not so much a threat detector as a compromise detector. So like Snort was a threat detection technology. It can detect, well, you know, you just got hit by SQL Slammer or you just got hit by Log4j. And for many organizations, um, you know, the original thought was, well, we need to identify which attack you got hit by because this is reflective of the TTPs that are out there, which will influence your response and so on and so forth. But the number of organizations out there that are actually capable of figuring out, oh, this TTP is in play and I need to you know, differentiate my response based on that versus the companies that are out there like, oh, that box just got hacked, uh, repave it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just like, re-image it and away we go. Right. <laughs> right? Like the, different, the, the number of companies who are actually prepared to do a very sophisticated response to a, an incident is a very small number of companies. It There's is. everybody else who's just getting their jobs done. Right? Yeah. A few banks, they kind of have it down because yeah. it happens occasionally and all hands on deck. I remember Visa was really amazing at this particular thing. They would just go over to it and plug it immediately. Yeah. They, don't, they don't care what. If they can't fix it within four hours, and now I think the number's way, way, way down from four hours, but back then it was, just rip it right out of the wall. Yeah. So, you know, so the question is, do I really need to have this really high fidelity detection to inform a very uh, sophisticated dif differentiated response, or do I just need to say, hey, this thing's been compromised? And I can see that by, you know, its behaviors changing it's on the network. New and anomalous like activity. Right. It's just like, this is a database server, and now it's taught, you know, now it's Speaking been sending out a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of DNS traffic suddenly. <laughs> Very large DNS packets to, you know, uh -huh. someplace in the, you know, on the other side of the world. Um, cool. Yeah, so we can see that stuff happening as it happens, and then we can signal in real time and, and basically tell your infrastructure, hey, man, this box has gone off the rails. Do something about it. Gotcha. So how does this fit in with like, like the ephemeral nature of a lot of, so like AWS for instance, they have this ephemeral, ephemeral machines mm -hmm. that were just, they're there one minute, they're gone. And then there's another one, they're, they're, um, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down. You, know, you can't even tell 
you can't say reliably what its IP address is even because it'll be it'll be gone by the time you yeah, write you it down. Those, yep. Serverless or lambdas and things like that. Yeah, it's, it really I mean, it's, a, it's like a time of check versus time of use issue across the entire network. It's really kind of terrifying how hard it is to instrument environments like that. Right. Yeah. So for us, in those kinds of things, it would depend on how they're set up. But you know, if you're like export the VPC context when the thing uh, is instantiated, we would get that context. We would see the activity, and when it goes away. Uh, it goes away. So we would uh, essentially tag the traffic that we see along with the VPC context and be able to do our analysis despite the th fact the thing doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then the question is, well, how much, you know, if the machine is gone, how much does it matter whether or not it was hacked in the 13 seconds that it was active? Well, I mean, the, the answer to that is, was it hacked or was the database behind it hacked? And well, th that's exactly <laughs> like, did, did they hop? <clears throat> right, did they hop? And is that database, you know, being, is the database also ephemeral or is it like something that's, that's mm -hmm. sitting there and these ephemeral workloads are essentially being load balanced across the, right. the demand? It's gone from here, but it's, now it's over here and, right. and it's still beaconing out. It's just now you lost fidelity. Right. Well, you lose fidelity on the <laughs> initial uh, attack vector, but you still have the anomalous activities that are going on on the, the on database the cluster. Right? And the new one, uh, and the new IP address that popped up. Yeah, it's just, it's just like this weird, tricky problem where you kind of have to now connect your cloud stuff into these systems to, it's like, I'm over here now, I'm over here now. It's like, yeah, you know, the, the, static la anymore. the Laceworks guys would say, well, we just have to instrument the apps themselves and then build the graph, and you know, that's mm -hmm. how you do it. And Sure. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what you could do, but you got to deploy agents now. Yeah. So, you, you know, it's like uh, pick your poison, I guess. Yeah, another group of my friends, uh, maybe it was yesterday, they were all just going back and forth. It's like, oh, no, it's agents. Now it's network. Now it's agents again. Now it's networks again. Oh, we have cryptos. So we have to go back to this. <laughs> yeah. It's like this evolving. <clears throat> so what's the answer? Like, is it, is it the network? Is it agents? Like, what, what's, what are we going to land on? I mean... <laughs> complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. I think the answer is probably going to be some, uh, you, you know, it, there is no, you know, you've been working in security as long as I have. Turns out there's no actual answer to right. the problems, right? So, it's kind of a trick question. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I think that um, having, having the fundamental capabilities there to be able to do things uh, like observe the, the network environment, even if you have like a, a super ephemeral um, segment you know, that's not going to be the totality of your network. It's going to be an area of your network. Yeah. Um, so the ability to still instrument and, and observe the entirety of your network environment to see, oh, the database cluster is acting funky, and now all of a sudden, you know, it's connecting to the finance network. Okay, well, that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's not great. Well, if you concentrate on, well, we were just doing agents, and the agents didn't show us that, um, or we were just concentrating on network, and we couldn't really tell um, when things were going off the rail because we didn't have the right fidelity, those kinds of things. Okay, and what about BYOD? BYOD, yes. Well, so there is the there is the question of when the users are all remote and working from home, how do you see their activities, especially if all they're doing is touching SaaS apps? So it's not, I mean, so during COVID, one of, one of my favorite anecdotes about this, I think it was Kareem Ajazi who said this. He's like, we saw this massive, massive, massive spike in these old pieces of malware well, as soon as COVID happened. And they were trying to figure out what happened. And basically, what happened is 
the IT guys were down there going, we gotta give out laptops right now. <laughs> so they just went to their stacks and stacks of old machines that are running like slow and you know, something's got pop-ups or whatever and they're just, you know, <laughs> flinging them the out. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's bad. But what's even worse is like, oh, well, I've got this old clunky desktop under my, you know, under my thing. I'm just going to turn it on. It's all dusty and messed up. But, you know, hey, it still boots. <laughs> I can do email, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, uh, um, yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of complexity that goes, like, once you uh, get into the home remote user world, it's like, okay, are you doing a VPN thing where everybody's VPNing back to the mothership and you're backhauling your traffic? Or is it you know, just people from home uh, accessing SaaS apps that you don't have visibility into? Or maybe you're exporting the logs out of the SaaS apps into some log analytics platform and just dumping it into Splunk, God forbid, mm -hmm. um, or whatever, uh, mm -hmm. yep. and trying to do it that way. Um, that is an area that we're kind of uh, scratching our heads about right now um, like you know it's what we're doing this is a hundred percent answer for everything right it's, yeah, yeah, it's no. like it's it's a pretty good answer for uh, we think for kind of modern enterprise architectures but if you start looking at like so our coin of the realm is flow data if you start looking at how do you get net flow data off of a Windows box or a Linux box or a Mac OS box well the answer is not obvious like mm -hmm. there aren't free tools to do it there are very few even commercial tools to do it. So if you wanted to package that data up and export it to you know, our back end, you're gonna have to do some work, or maybe we have to write an agent right. to there get it go. to you. There we agents. go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that question, because there is no answer. Right? Right. It's, it's, it's both. I mean, you gotta have, the answer is both. Yeah. It, it, but it's, it's dependent upon the situation, and that's why it's such a tricky question. Oh. Um, yeah, well, I've... I, th I mean, the only thing I come back with is maybe like a Citrix or something, you know? It's like, I don't really care what you're running on this computer, I'm just not gonna trust you with anything. So here's this agent, back to agents, but this agent is basically a VPN tunnel or RDP sort of mm -hmm. thing that allows you to connect to these remote systems and then you can monitor it again. Now it's back on your network and you have full visibility and yeah. bad things happen and you can spot it really quickly. But w without that, if people are using cloud apps, you know, Google Mail or whatever, you know, you're yeah. not going to see anything. Yeah, you see very, very little. It's yep. all going to be gone. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a very complicated problem because the, the fan out, to you know, use a, an engineering word, an electrical engineering word, the fan out is, uh, is very high very quickly. So like the, the number of different scenarios that you can run into that you have to figure out some sort of instrumentation for it, it very quickly gets kind of untenable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no pun intended. Yeah, right. Um, so you had a blog post about the Tower of Babel problem. Oh yeah. Can you, can you tell me about that? Sure. Okay. Um, so this is um, so we have this uh, this acronym that uh, we coined at um, that at Netography to talk about atomized networks, to talk about the attributes of atomized networks. Uh, they're what we call DEED environments, and DEED stands for uh, Dispersed, Ephemeral, Encrypted, and Diverse. So the Tower of Babel problem is related to the last D there, the diversity issue. And the diversity issue on networks is that um, essentially in many enterprise networks, especially you'll have an IT environment, your on-prem IT environment, you'll have a, a multi-cloud environment, uh, and in a lot of them you also have an OT environment. And 
in all of those different environments, you're gonna have different tools. So maybe you'll have Palo Alto or Cisco in the on-prem IT environment, and then in the OT environment, you'll have like Clarity or Armis or something like that. In the cloud environment, maybe you'll be using like you know, Wiz or some CWPP technology, or um, you know, you'll be living off the land and using Defender and Sentinel or CloudTrail or whatever. And I'm going to have different teams yeah. <laughs> that operate those technologies. <laughs> they have different policies that uh, are enacted in different languages, and they have different eventing and different reporting. So when things happen, like it's a mess very quickly. If an attacker lands and spreads laterally, like you know the Uber attack. They get in, they immediately go to the cloud properties, and they're, you know, by the time you find them, they're you know, messaging you on Slack. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like, oh, well, that's super ugly. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that person really got around. So the Tower of Babel problem is essentially, like we're building, we're literally, almost literally building this Tower of Babel inside all of our enterprises, where I have these different teams that are using different tools that almost literally speak different languages to talk about the same problem. And we should recognize it for what it is <laughs> and maybe not do that, right? Uh -huh. So that is, that's one of our, our you know, kind of our uh, thesis at Notography is, hey man, your network is actually, like it's all bound together by IPv4 or IPv6 networking. You should treat your enterprise network as the composite of all of its components instead of a bunch of components that have to be observed and defended separately from one another. Mm -hmm. um, because you, you are you know, just building this, this gigantic problem for yourself by not treating it that way. Now there are uh, very specific cases where you might need very specific uh, capabilities to defend like the crown jewels and things like that. I get that, but for like broad applicability, um, thinking about all these things as different, very different things that have to have very different tools and techniques to protect them is maybe not the way to go given the trend of how networking is, is going right now mm -hmm. in terms of its atomization and spread to uh, you know kind of the, the four corners of the earth. So what do I get to get rid of with nectography? I mean they're, they're surely going to replace something, some legacy technology. Yeah, we are kind of observing that our customers are deploying us for you know, whatever problem they're bringing us in for. A lot of multi-cloud visibility stuff, some kind of NDR-like functionality, although we are not an NDR. And what we're seeing as we get into uh, customer environments, they're finding more and more use cases that the technology really addresses. So the Netography system is a platform. You can do a ton of stuff with it, but we concentrate on a very small set of use cases because you can't just roll into a customer and say, hey, Mr. Customer, we can see your entire network. What problem would you like to solve? Mm -hmm. Right? You have to roll in and say, we can do operational governance and compromise detection and threat hunting and discovery and mapping. And yeah. you know, most enterprises have those problems, right? right. So yeah, yeah. that's all very cool. But once we get into these places, like the operators get real smart in a hurry because the technology is very accessible and it's also very easy to get up and running anywhere. So they're coming back to us now and they're like, you know, you guys actually do 80% of what an NDR does and you don't have any of the curation overhead that those technologies have. So we're going to let that thing end of life and then, you know, we're just going to hmm. use you guys moving forward. Or we, we brought you in for multi-cloud visibility and now we've had a compromise in one of our on-prem data centers. So you can be up and running today. So we're just going to deploy you. It would take us months to get appliances in here and get them running. So we're going to get you guys going. And they're like, oh, I can see what I need to see. Perfect. Let's re replicate that across other data centers. So I kind of call it a yes and sale, uh, where, you know, yeah, you've got this, and you can also use us, and as you get used to it, you're going to find that you have less and less use for the old way of doing things. Mm -hmm. um, 
that seems to be what we're getting into. We do see some replacement stuff going on with older technologies, um, you know, flow and anal uh, analysis tools, uh, and um, you know, some types of kind of IDS-like functionality, uh, as well as um, you know, we're getting brought in like uh, FICO is one of our uh, big reference customers. They're using us for audit compliance uh, mm. internally, so. They know that you know they used to throw all their data in a data lake and do reports, and it took hours to get the reports out. And now they have the data in notography. They run a query in the system. They have the data in seconds. Their auditors are happy, and you know they get back to work. So yeah, it's cool. it's uh, it's pretty interesting the use cases that we see customers really coming up with for the technology. What, what kind of customers do you end up having? I mean, do you have like a this is our sweet spot? These are where we go for or? large enterprise right now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting though. Um, Across the large enterprise, uh, we have a very diverse customer base. So we have an airline, large semiconductor manufacturer, software company. We have a few banks. We have uh, one of the world's largest beverage companies. Uh, we have, uh, um, you know, a shipping company. We have a water uh, authority. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, we have a very diverse customer set. And to me, that's really interesting because what that says to me is that this is broadly applicable. It's not just something the banking industry is going to use, or just you know, the tech industry is going to use. Everybody can use it. To me, as you know, the business yeah. guy in me says, "Ooh, that, there's a large total addressable market here." So, how does this play in with zero trust? And I mean, can you <laughs> can you wrap all that up? Well, and also, can you explain what zero trust is? Because I think a lot wow, of people. Wow, I don't think we have enough time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think a lot of people even know what it is. Yeah. All right. Wow. So zero trust. So zero trust. The theory of zero trust is, hey, what if I uh, trust nothing, and then everything has to kind of prove itself anytime it wants to. Um, access resources that I want to control access to. That's the theory of it. The, the practical reality of it in a lot of cases is that we're going to take all of our trust issues and we're going to put them into one single basket. Mm -hmm. Then this is going to work perfectly yeah. and we're never going to have problems with it and then we'll just make everything rely on that. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of the application. I, I'm being a little sarcastic, <laughs> but not too sarcastic. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of zero trust is like outsourcing your trust to, you know, one or a few, uh, you know, not exactly single points of failure, but you know, you are putting a very few eggs in uh, one big basket uh, to do it. Uh, the price that you pay for doing that is like the fundamental kind of operating principle of zero trust in a lot of cases is we're going to encrypt everything and to unlock it, especially network traffic and disks, um, you have to... Uh, authenticate um, your identity or whatever um, credentials you have to get access to XYZ. Well, for me as a guy who's been analyzing network traffic for the last 27 years, uh, if you encrypt all my network traffic, it gets very hard to analyze. So yes. I'm not a super fan as a result of that because <laughs> I think people have charged down this path without realizing the implications of what it's going to do to all this deployed capability well, that you put out there. It'll be fine. <laughs> We just put agents out there forever. <laughs> it's like, I got 75 agents. Um, but, you know, the idea of zero trust is that it's supposed to um, contain the, you know, the quote-unquote blast radius. If you get compromised because you need to have authenticated access uh, to uh, all the stuff um, and the infrastructure that can handle all of the... Uh, um, assertions and things like that, that I am in fact who I am, you know, there's roots of trust and, and things like that built into hardware. Um, and the problem is that the, the, the weak part of the argument is that if you do in fact get compromised, if they compromise the 
authentication system, essentially, the, the credentialing system, then you still have full access to everything, but you've actually blinded a lot of your infrastructure as a result of encrypting everything. Oh, totally. So, yeah. so hate to be that guy, but has anybody thought about <laughs> what happens if this doesn't work very well? Like uh -huh. if it's poorly implemented or half implemented, because it is in a lot of places. And um, yeah, it's it's problematic because you, you the price that you've paid to get there is like really uh, reducing uh, what can be seen. So from our standpoint, zero trust driving encryption uh, to be this kind of pervasively um, present. Um, hurdle to understanding what's happening in your environment uh, makes a, a metadata analytics platform like we've built here, like it becomes very obvious that if you're going to do that, then you've got to have something like what we've been doing because it's kind of the only game in town as, mm -hmm. as far as like conceptually, how do you address these problems? If I need to have real-time visibility in what's happening at the network and everything's encrypted on the network, what's the path forward? Well, you need real-time metadata source, that's flow. Uh, and I need context about what's happening. So I can see these activities happening in the environment, and then I can marry them back to users and processes and locations and security groups and things like that. So I can start establishing like what are the patterns and um, uh, operations that are normally happening around here, and how can I see things going off the rails. Mm. Yeah, well, one of the things I don't like about Zero Trust is it implies you actually know where all your stuff is. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's <laughs> like, like uh, you know, yeah, it's you, like... But you don't. <laughs> right, exactly. It's, it's like uh, data leak protection, you know. It's yeah. like, first, take all of your data and register it with our system. It's like, excuse me, <laughs> does anybody know where all their data is? And if they did, would they really need a DLP system? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Oof. Yeah, a lot of... <clears throat> that's, so I joke about agents in a different way. Yeah. It's like... Um, it's like, well, we'll install an agent on the, all our machines so we know where they all are. It's like, what, you, I don't think you see the problem with that logic. <laughs> what if you didn't know where they all were? <laughs> I ran into this one customer one time, or potential customer. We didn't actually get them, and I'm, I'm actually fine with that because they're like, well, we don't, uh, we don't use Amazon. We only use Azure. I'm like, great. Well, what about all these Amazon instances I'm looking at? They're like, well, we don't use Amazon. I'm like, but you do, and there it is. And they're like, well, we don't allow it by policy. I'm like... I know. <laughs> and yet here we are. <laughs> uh, it was a very weird conversation. They were very convinced that they were right. I'm like, I don't know how to help you. <laughs> Ugh, it's it's a like mess. slide the sheet across the table. <laughs> so uh, you have, uh, I'm sure, some thoughts on where the industry is needs to go in mm. the next handful of years. Sure. Um, that there's probably need to be some radical shifts in technology and, and maybe business processes. I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, can you shed some light on where you think things are going? Yeah. Um, my biggest kind of uh, um, drum that I'm banging these days, really, in a lot of cases, is the fact that the architectures of the security infrastructure is really lagging the architectures of the uh, environments that it's trying to protect. Now, you know, all the cloud stuff, obviously, that's built for the cloud. Um, there's a lot of cloud security vendors that are out there that are saying, well, the cloud is the beginning and end of networking, so we don't need to worry about all this goofy stuff on-prem. Like, nobody does that anymore and things like that. Mm. But the reality is that, of course, it's like, all still there. All, especially major corporations, that stuff's all still there and it's not going away anytime soon. Yeah, I, I, we did some basic analysis and there's this big, like, everyone's moving to the cloud. 
They aren't. Mm. They're just also building in the cloud. They mm -hmm. didn't get anything out of their old infrastructure. <laughs> no, I mean, especially once the pandemic hit, there was literally nobody to turn off the lights. It's like, yeah. well, the data center is still there and you can't turn it off because I built all these dependencies for my apps mm -hmm. that I built during the pandemic. And half of those people left the job and right. nobody really knows screwed. what's going on, who's talking to what, you yeah. know, all that stuff. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm really pretty uh, strident about the fact that the architectures that we're operating on are not well suited to the environments in which they are being operated. And there's so much sunk cost into the plant, essentially, especially at the biggest vendors that are out there, Cisco's and Palo Alto's and um, you know, all the major players, that you're not going to see them make the kind of architectural uh, you know, almost revolution that you need to to get your hands around where networking is today. Like this balkanization problem, this, this Tower of Babel problem, isn't just around visibility and control of trying to understand what I've got and what it's doing. There's other areas, like as you try to manage zero trust across a, an atomized network where I'm in multiple clouds plus on-prem, plus OT environments, like how does that work? Plus mobile. Plus mobile. How do you make that work <laughs> across all of those things when you are just deploying separate solutions for each discrete area instead of considering them as a composite. And oh, by the way, there's nothing available <laughs> that considers it as a composite, right? Like we built this for our area of expertise where we know what we're doing, but we can see this balkanization exists across all these disciplines where the networks have atomized and none of the architectures of any of the solutions have kept up with the fact that, hey, if I have to manage each area of my network as a separate thing with a separate team, I'm actually not gonna get better security. In fact, you could make the argument, it's gonna be worse. Mm -hmm. And you probably wouldn't be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm assuming, you, I, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but I'd guess you assume there's gonna be some more consolidation of the markets. Always. Well, so, I guess it's kind of a hybrid question because last year, this time, we saw a massive decrease in valuations. Mm. I mean, really pretty crazy. And uh, this year, almost exactly a year later, we're seeing a lot of the largest uh, security companies missing earnings. Mm. And so I think that's just a ripple effect of the same problem. It just takes a while for the public markets to go through their pipelines and then miss their earnings and their earnings call. And that takes another several months or whatever. And then finally, you feel it, right? Right. So what happens? Where is the market going? Who's going away? Who's going to get bought? What, what do you think? Um, I think if you, you know, it, it depends on a number of factors. So for example, uh, we're a Series A company. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're wildly unprofitable with no expectation of profitability anytime soon on the one hand. Uh, on the other hand, we do have a large number of very enthusiastic uh, and very you know, well-regarded investors who are out there who are willing to like, let us run and see where we can get. Um, and the bet is that you know we have a very experienced team and we're gonna figure it out. So there's a cadre of companies like that. There's a cadre of companies that are a lot farther along in their journeys and they're still not profitable. They've gone through five or six rounds of funding and they don't really have, you know, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I think some of those will start winding down or, or you know, you'll see them shrinking and, and getting rolled up into PEs or you know, whatever. Um, as well. Uh, you'll see probably a wave of uh, acquisitions happen in the wake of the compressed valuations. Yeah, I would uh, assume so, right? Yeah, of companies that are... There's a lot of IP out there that just got to get sucked up. Right, exactly. They're well positioned. They're, you know, they're at the point where it's close enough where you can bring them into a larger organization, get the go-to-market efficiencies and turn it into a profitable business and things like that. What you don't want... You know, no company's going to buy a fixer-upper for the most part, except maybe a, a PE firm that's, that has a thesis for putting the components together and, you know, you're 
on the right idea, but you know the organization and the tech has to be. Or, or the or the people are just bad, or for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. Um, so you'll see some of that stuff, I'm sure, happen as well. Like Vista Equity, I think they're they're in that that realm. Yeah, but I, you know, I don't see like this kind of wild paring down of the industry or anything like that. I mean. Cybersecurity, for better or worse, it's plumbing, and you know the pipes are always leaking. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's always customers out there. Yes, we're seeing uh, uh, budget slowdowns and compression and things like that. But um, unless there's a company that's very poorly funded and uh, doesn't have like great kind of economics, um, almost every company is going to figure out a way to get through this period and see what's on the other side. So what do you, what is it like having gone from I mean, you were a CEO, then you're an investor, you're back to being CEO. I mean, do you just miss being at the, the butt of every joke? or the, Exactly. <laughs> the one has to write the, all so, the checks? So how like, much do you like getting clubbed in the head? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Uh, um, I mean, can't, talking to the board on the other side of the table, that's just can't be that much fun. Uh, you know, it's not terrible. I get a lot of leeway um, because mm -hmm. of the track record and things like that. And, you know, we're usually, the cool thing about doing it now is that I like, I understand the game I'm playing. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it 20 years ago very well. Uh, I knew the tech and I knew what I was building, but like the ins and out of operating the company and uh, managing the board and all those things, like getting ahead of problems. So when you, you know, don't be gross and go have the board meeting during the board meeting, you gotta have the board mm -hmm. meeting before the board meeting, you know, yes. all those kinds of things. Yeah, pre-sell. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and like understanding what their concerns are so you can address them appropriately and things like that. So, uh, you know, I, I feel well um, kind of prepared for a lot of that. I was talking to one of my uh, source fire um, you know, coworkers slash mentors uh, from uh, when we uh, were building the company, and um, I was talking to him about coming and being the CEO at Notography. Mm -hmm. He said, "You know, are you sure you want to be a CEO? Are you, sure, you know, like it, you, you've done it before? Do you really want that responsibility?" You don't remember how much you got beat up. You right, just exactly. can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, my point to him it's like was startup amnesia. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like having a baby, right? Um, <laughs> My point to him was, look, if not me, then who? Like, uh, who else is at the, you know, I'm at the point in my career where, like, I know way more about the tech than most CEOs do, and I know the market that we're going into, and I know, you know, the right people, uh, and, you know, can build the team and do all the things that need to be done to build a great business. I can do all those things now that maybe, that I was kind of sketchy on when I started Sourcefire, and I was better at the end, but I had a great team at Sourcefire. Uh, at the end uh, as well, who like made me a better CEO by you know kind of making my life easy because they were excellent. Um, but you know now we're in this new this new th mode and it's new technology and new people and things like that. And you know we have some of the um, Sourcefire team, but we have a bunch of excellent people from all over the industry that are working at the company. Yeah, I recognize a couple names over there. Yeah, and uh, you know it's just. Um, it's really kind of fascinating, and you know, not every day is magical. Obviously, it's uh, you know, hey, you know, you could wake up on a Thursday morning and your bank just went away, <laughs> for example. It's <laughs> did, like, did that but all my money was there. <laughs> did that was that? One oh of, yeah, that happened to us. Oh my god. <laughs> oh no, it was a fun. Tell me about day. that. What, what was that like? <laughs> well, I get up in the morning, so I'm on I'm on a, a an Andreessen Horowitz mailing list. They're an investor in the company, a CEO mailing list, and like, there's all this grumbling going on about SVB, and I start looking at them like, what is going on here? 
And I started seeing what people were writing. I was like, is there a bank run starting right now on SVB? Are you kidding me? And I had to fly out to Utah that day. So I'm like, you know, uh, communicating with my team. And I'm like, hey, keep your eye on this. And I'm talking to some of my investors. And I'm like, hey, you see what's up? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's overblown. Don't worry about it. So on and so forth. And then, you know, I get on the plane. I'm flying to Utah. And um, as I'm going along, I'm like, you know, I'm just watching stuff unfolding in real time. So I contacted my team. I'm like, hey, we might want to get ready to move like maybe half our money someplace else. And, you know, my VP of finance, she's like, hey, we don't actually have another commercial banking relationship. So we're going to need one of those if we want to move money out. It's like, (laughs) oh, my God. So then we start shaking the bushes like, who can we get to have a commercial banking relationship with like immediately? Um, So Mercury is a customer of ours. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, you know, the guys who handle my personal uh, stuff. They're a, a giant global bank as well. So um, I uh, contacted my guys, and I con- we contacted Mercury. And I'm literally on the plane, like, because they got to do the whole know your customer thing. So Mercury was already a customer of ours, so we already oh, had a relationship. Yeah. But I still like <laughs> taking pictures of my driver's license on the airplane on this United flight that's got Wi-Fi that's dropping out like 10 minutes out of every 15, like willing each packet to get out of my laptop down to the ground and then I land and you know, as soon as I land I've got like all these messages people are like call me call me call me <laughs> so I'm talking to my lawyers I'm like hey I can just move all of our you know all the money in the company to my own personal wealth management account he's like oh my god that would no don't do that <laughs> it's like okay uh, and then you know we get this thing going with Mercury but by the time it was ready the bank was already closed for the day and then the next day it opens up and like FICA or you know FDIC comes in and shuts the doors I mean and it, like literally all of our money was there. And it was like, oh, well, this is not great. Wow. <laughs> we got to make payroll next week. So then we were into plan A, B, and C, getting a payroll plan together from, you know, um, whatever sources we could, including, you know, I, plan C was like me paying personally yeah. for, to make payroll. Yeah. You and, do what you got to do. Yeah, you do what you got to do. And uh, luckily, you know, Source Fire gave me the wherewithal to be able to do that. But man, yeah, it was a total mess. And then, you know, my sister was visiting that weekend, and I'm just on my phone the whole weekend. My wife is entertaining her, and we're sitting at, you know, we're at the dinner table on Sunday night, and the news came out that FDIC was going to, you know, insure everybody and get your money back and stuff like that. It was like, there was great rejoicing. Yeah, uh, And then, uh, but then almost immediately I was like, but wait a second, we still don't have the money, and it's still all at SVB, <laughs> which is still shut. So everybody in the world tomorrow is going to try to get their money out, which means we're not going to get easy access to it. So I still got this payroll problem. Um, so then, you know, we spent the next 24 hours working to actually get our money out of it, which we eventually did. And then we moved a bunch back because actually we've got great terms with them on a bunch of stuff. So mm. we wanted to keep the relationship going. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I thought you were going to say that Andreessen Horwitz came in and, and just said, hey, just put your money in our account for today, right? Uh, or whatever. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not that easy because you can't just put it in their account because like you, it turns into this omnibus fund, right? Mm-hmm. So they would have to have an account for every company. Otherwise, they'd have to like put it on an Excel spreadsheet. I think they would have to do it in Excel. But you know, you do what you got to do, right? You're off by yeah, a handful was, of dollars here. Uh, I mean, you just kind of do it. I mean, a bunch of companies, <laughs> a bunch of companies, the fun, you know, like the management teams, the CEOs did move stuff into their personal wealth management accounts and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, it was yeah. ugly. Yeah. Because I was talking to our lawyers, they're like, you're gonna, you're like, you're gonna break all these covenants. It's gonna be a giant, uh, you know, compliance problem. Yada, yada, yada. I was like, all right, fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't really want to do it because I was like, you know, if this gets screwed up all of a sudden, I'm going to be on the hook and maybe one of our investors decides they want to sue and now it's my problem. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I uh, I saw a couple people who went through that, uh, you know, CEO friends of mine, and 
one of them in particular, I'm not going to out who the guy was, but he doesn't drink. I've never, I mean, I probably haven't seen him drink in probably 10 plus years or whatever. And he's at a party and he's on his third glass of wine and he just looks frazzled. I'm like, hey man, everything okay? He's like, yeah. Uh, the whole Silicon Valley Bank thing, it kind of explains it. And he, like his story was like, like they said they weren't going to let him do payroll and then they did payroll twice and so he was out this massive chunk of money wasn't expecting and then they thought he was trying to withdraw his money so then they were putting stops to it like all back and forth and so it was like seven days of him just struggling oh and, yeah and and by the time he was finished telling me the story he had two more glasses of wine <laughs> <laughs> and he's like I, I gotta walk around I gotta get up <laughs> I mean I spent like that Saturday when the whole thing mind. was blown up I was like you know some of our money was in a money market fund that was split across BlackRock and Morgan Stanley. And like, we got out the prospectuses and figured out who had the money. And like, I got them on the phone. I was like, where's my money and when can I get it? They're like, we have your money. It's very safe. <laughs> However, we can't get it to you because of the way it's, it's being, you know, like accounted for. It's like, well, okay, I guess. <laughs> so I feel so much better. <laughs> yeah, right. I feel a little better, but I, I felt good. Like, at least I was doing something. I like, yeah, I felt, uh, I felt pretty, uh, Cool for actually like figuring out who to get on the phone, and they actually answered on a Saturday. Yeah, yeah, but apparently they were getting a lot of phone calls. I bet, I bet. <laughs> it was a busy weekend. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk br briefly, if you were willing to do so, about your sailing as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so tell us kind of how you got into that, and oh, yeah. what type of sailing? Because there's different types, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I got into sailing in 2010. I was 40. Uh, and um, perfect age. Yeah, right. Well, you know, so one day I was uh, working, you know, source where I was traveling for work, and like I was sitting in this airport, and all of a sudden I was like, where even am I right now? I had like this moment of like cognitive dissonance where I was like, I don't even actually know where I am right now. I looked out the window, and, like you know, Mount Rainier's out the window. I'm like, Seattle. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I so such similar stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm you literally traveling, airport, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I have almost 2 million actual button seat miles on United, right? Uh -huh. I mean, I've flown everywhere. And uh, yeah, it was just like, my entire life is conference room, hotel room, airport, rinse, repeat, like, all the time. Oh, oh, pause real quick. So my version of the exact same story, I'm sitting there and I'm talking to the lady because my thing's not, the document, they have paper tickets, it's not working, so I go up to the counter. And uh, she's like, oh, where are you going today? I'm like, going to Austin, Texas. She's like, no, you're not. I'm like, I'm not? She's like, no. I'm like, why am I not doing that? Because you're in Austin, Texas. I'm like, oh. <laughs> well, I have well, no idea easy. where I'm going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so I was like, there's got to be more to life than this. And... Before I started Sourcefire, you know, so I moved to Maryland in the mid-90s, and if you spend enough time in Central Maryland, you eventually end up in Annapolis. If you spend enough time in Annapolis, you end up on a sailboat. And my little engineering heart saw this big, complicated yeah. machine that people knew how to operate and, like, do all this cool stuff with. And it was, you know, silent, moving through the water and all this other stuff. I was like, oh, this is awesome. i got to learn how to do this someday. And one of my thoughts in the back of my mind when I was starting Sourcefire was, you know, if this goes well, maybe I'll, someday I'll have enough money to be able to take the time to go learn. Um, and then fast forward to 10 years later, and all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, like my actual like day-to-day -day life, like what I have to do every day to like do my job actually is not very much fun anymore. Mm. <laughs> and um, so I thought, hey, wait a second, I want to learn how to sell. So I signed myself up for uh, sailing school at the Annapolis uh, Sailing School, 
and, um, and, and SourceFire at this point, you know, we were a public company. I didn't have to be there every d single day to make it go anymore. Like, big company, very successful. Um, and I just didn't need to be there every minute of every day. So I was like, I'm going to sailing school, guys. And they were like, okay, cool, have fun. And mm -hmm. I went there and I spent a week learning how to sail, and it was great, and I loved it. And then, um, you know, I went back a few months later and spent another week, like, getting skilled up on how to uh, manage the boats and navigate and things like that. And then uh, bought a little 30-footer with, uh, uh, um, co-owned it with SourceFire's uh, first CEO uh, that I hired, uh, Wayne Jackson. And then, um, you know, uh, did that for a year. And then the next year I bought a race boat because I kind of figured out if you really want to skill up, the fast way to get there is go racing because, you know, a weekend of racing, you'll encounter more scenarios and situations uh, than you'll do an entire season of uh, cruising. So I started racing, and then my competitive instincts got kicked in, and I got, you know, like everything, got mm -hmm. a little overboard. Yeah, <laughs> no <laughs> um, pun intended. No pun intended, <laughs> right. And then uh, uh, I bought a family cruiser to go sailing with my family on and, and uh, did that for several years. And then, you know, my, my tastes and the things that I'm interested in evolved. And now um, I have a, a race boat that is uh, a dedicated offshore racing boat um, for shorthanded sailing. So you can sail with as few as one, one people on it. You typically, right now, we're, I just got the boat in December. Um, typically we sell a four on it right now, but mm -hmm. you know, it's a class of race boat that's made for doing very long distance uh, races with very few people on the boat, uh, and it's tons of fun. I love being out, you know, way offshore. Um, you know, there's wildlife and stars, and mm -hmm. I can tell you a, a ton of stories. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it's like a life less ordinary kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then uh, uh, I also have a, a family cruiser, so I have a bigger family cruiser now, and I also have a bigger family. Uh, so, mm -hmm. uh, um, and that thing can go anywhere. Caribbean, it's been uh, in uh, Europe, the Caribbean, uh, up and down the U.S. East Coast and stuff like that. It's wow, just, so you've really sailed, not, yeah. just, uh, not just down the... Territorial waters all over the place. Yeah, well, the cruiser, we were actually on it when the pandemic blew up. We were uh, in the Caribbean, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and like we literally had to run for it. Uh, like the zombie apocalypse was happening. All these islands were closing up shop. Like you couldn't go to a bunch of islands, and like we ended up going to Grenada. I knew nothing about Grenada. I had no idea wow. of anything about Grenada, but I knew they had uh, a really good uh, marina for cruisers there, and I knew it was out of the hurricane. Uh, zone. So if I had to leave the boat, it would be safe. And uh, yeah, we went down there and um, we were one of the last boats to get in. And then uh, we ended up having to leave the boat down there. We almost sailed it 1,400 miles back to Florida to get it, you know, keep it under our control because, you know, there was a thought that, hey, once we leave this boat, like we're not going to see it again for nobody knows how long. Uh, but there was a problem with the battery bank on the boat, and you know there were only me and one other uh, really qualified sailor on the boat. So if the batteries go out, then the autopilot doesn't work, and you might also lose GPS and radios. And it's like mm, that's, <laughs> that's pretty dangerous. We don't we don't really know the Caribbean <laughs> waters that well. Like there's lots of reefs and islands and stuff like that. So we said no, we're not going to do that. So we ended up having to leave the boat. We caught literally the last flight out of Grenada. They closed the airport uh, like an hour after we left and announced their first cases on the island. The airport didn't reopen for seven months. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Anyway, um, <laughs> two years ago, a few months before I took the Even job. A few hours later, yeah. that would have been a very different story. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, two, year, uh, two years ago, like this month, I, me, me and my guys went down and got the boat and sell it 
2,100 miles uh, up to Annapolis. So uh, this is before I was working so for Tyrone We got it back, and good God, it was like th just so much fun. Huh. I never sailed the you know 2,000 miles. So it was three hops, but it was just you know sailed up the Bahamas and then uh, up the Gulf Stream to uh, well to Fort Lauderdale and the Charleston and then around Hatteras up, up the bay and stuff like that. Just fabulous. Wow, yeah. cool. So. Um, my real knowledge of it is mostly the catamarans. Mm. Um, I, I, have you ever been on some, like racing catamarans? Have you ever tried it? Uh, so I've done beach cats, like little Hobie waves uh, at um, you know like resorts in the Caribbean and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, I have a buddy who's got a catamaran. It's not a racing catamaran, but I've never been on like a really super hardcore racer. Mm -hmm. um, although they look really interesting. Uh, yeah, there's um, there's a bunch. I'm close enough to it that if I really wanted to get on one, I could, because mm -hmm, yeah. uh, of my racing background. But I just, you know, it's time and opportunity. Yeah, the thing I thought was most interesting from a technical perspective, mm -hmm. and, the, and to me, this is probably the closest analogy, sport-wise, um, to Formula One, is the catamaran racing, like the Oracle, like oh, yeah. wing sail type catamarans. Yeah, like that is a, a really bizarre but very interesting technology where it's. It's a split hull or split uh, sail, like part, it's partly rigid or maybe even fully rigid depending on the design. Yep. Um, and one of the coolest things is it seems to work at pretty much any angle. So it doesn't really matter where the wind's going, you're still going. And tacking yeah. is totally different. And well, the wind's always forward of the beam, right? So your apparent wind always goes forward uh, because the boats are so fast, they essentially generate their own wind, which makes them go faster and faster. So. Yeah, the um, the Grand Prix racing that they're doing now on the the fifty footers are like, uh, you know, they'll be in eighteen knots of wind. They'll be going fifty knots. That's crazy. It's, it's incredible. I mean, it, it almost defies laws of physics. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I know how it works, but still, when you see it, it's like, <laughs> there's no way that can work. <laughs> Someone's put an engine underneath that thing. Yeah, right. it's, yeah it's amazing. Uh, and then they whip those things around the race course. They actually do fleet racing with them, where they got like eight boats on the race course at a time. It's like. Like when they're coming at each other, their closing speed is like a hundred knots. If those things actually collide at any point, like people right. will die. Yeah, it's like potential for ugliness is yeah. very high. Yeah, and I, I, I think there's a, the team aspect of it I like. There's the technical aspect, and and there is a lot of technology on these boats beyond just you know a sail. I mean, that, oh, yeah. although that is mind-blowingly compli complicated from my perspective. But uh, just understanding the like, depth and like where things are and whether ships are going to potentially cross your path and yeah. uh, salinity and all these other things you have to know to, if you're going to be really good at it to make sure that you're getting the most optimal path through the water. And oh, yeah. Yes, uh, people don't really uh, understand how high-tech sailboats really are. Like, they, oh, it's a sailboat. How high-tech could it be? You know. A lot of the boats that I've raced on, or well, some of the boats I've raced on, the whole boat is carbon fiber. The sails are carbon fiber. Like the entire boat is carbon fiber, and they're just these, you know, the, this this parade of triumphs of material science that you know floats on the water, and you can <laughs> you know take anywhere, and it, it'll you know things the size of a house, and it's going 30 knots down waves mm -hmm. off the coast of you know Baja California. Uh, it's crazy. Um, and just the, you know, even the, the stuff that I sell now, just, you know, these lot of very high-tech systems, especially the satellite communications, the navigation systems, things like that. It's really fascinating. You know, my little engineer's heart is always like, you know. And it keeps evolving, too. It's not like it, oh, yeah. it's not done. Well, Starlink is coming now. So we had Inmarsat, so you've got, you know, these little R2-D2s sitting on the back of the boat, and 
the bandwidth kind of sucks. I mean, it's 192K or something like that. Now Starlink's coming as like gigabit mm -hmm. and, you know, can be always on. Uh, yeah. You can do Zoom calls straight from the boat. Right, do Zoom <laughs> calls while I'm racing offshore, which I really don't want to do. Uh, but, I mean, all that stuff is, uh, is possible now, and it's just going to keep improving. That's so cool. Yeah. So any lessons? Um, so having, you know, have you been able to bring anything back from the racing world? Uh, I think really um, a lot of the lessons that you get from the racing world are kind of... Uh, almost exercises in leadership, um, you know, like, I, I, you know, when I built Snort, like, I turned into this leader, but it was just because I was building cool technology, and, like, I, I'm not the most obnoxious person in the world to be around, so people, like, take me pretty seriously, and, and you know, I've got a, a pretty good reputation as being, like, pretty level-headed and, and thoughtful about what I do, but the things on the boats are that there are you know command decisions that need to be made we're going this way we're going that way or you know something just catastrophically broke and we've got to like take action right now where you have to take command and be in charge and i think those leadership lessons that i've learned where you can't hide you know it's not like well i don't feel like dealing with this guy today because you know uh, it's been a rough day and i don't want to you know deal with the fact that the mast just fell over mm -hmm. well it's, that's not an option so kind of taking decisive action and, and, you know, understanding that these problems aren't going to go away if you ignore them and things like that. I, I think it's just been something that gets you to, to lead a little more directly. Um, other lessons, you know, it's kind of, uh, I, I've always been a person who kind of uh, looks ahead. I think I'm better at looking ahead in my professional world than I am in my sailing world uh, still, but I'm, I'm getting better as time marches on. Um, there, you know, a lot of it's kind of a confidence thing too. I mean, you have to have a lot of confidence in your abilities to be on a twenty-one hundred mile in the middle of the ocean. Oh, sure. I mean, that's there's a lot of risk there. So, uh, yeah, I know, but it's not. It's not. It's not like <laughs> just my life. It's it's, fine. Not, it's not. But it's not unconstrained risk. Like you know the risks that you've got, and you've got a lot of backups. So, like there's life rafts, and there's satcoms, and there's epurbs, you know, disaster beacons, and there's. Uh, portable, you know, sat phones that you can carry with you, and you know, you know the traffic that's around you. You can call for help if you need it. You can call the Coast Guard for help via the sat phone or whatever if you need it. So there's all sorts of resources out there. So an actual catastrophic failure of the boat where you lose it so quickly that you're completely out of control is pr very rare. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not so worried about that. One of the things that so my uh, youngest daughter uh, took up sailing last year and she's on the high school sailing team and to your point the confidence thing one of the things that i like seeing in her is her confidence increasing <clears throat> as uh she gets better at it and she gets more experience and time out on the water because you know she's out on a boat with one other person and they're just you know they're making it go and they're racing and they're competitive and you know she's getting better uh, from you know last year she was a little tentative where she got started this last weekend uh, they won almost every race that they were in, and, you know, she's throwing her body around the boat and, you know, hauling on the lines and, like, really racing the boat. And I was like, yeah, go get it. It's badass. And, and you can't talk to her when she's out there. You can watch her, but you can't talk to her, so mm -hmm. she's just doing her, her thing with her, uh, her skipper. You just need a bigger megaphone. Right. <laughs> it's getting all rad. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, and, you know, it, it, it's helped me with my confidence, too, but, you know, a lot of it is just doing. Sailboat is, sailboats are, like... You know, you read about it and then you go do it. And once you do it, you can kind of really comprehend it and build confidence and 
doing uh, simple as well as complicated things or managing like you know these huge loads in the sales and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a really interesting episode last summer where we were taking our family cruiser up to uh, uh, New England um, for the summer, the hot months, like the Chesapeake in the summer is kind of miserable. So we take the boat up to New England because we figured it'll be fun to have it up there. And we were 70 miles off the coast of um, Long Island and the steering cable that controls the rudder broke. So my daughter's on the boat with me, and then uh, we've got three other um, capable racing sailors and me on the boat. So the thing breaks, you know, we're in like rough seas, eight foot waves, it's really windy, we've got a lot of sail up, the boat immediately wipes out, uh, and it's out of control, right? The, the uh, spinnaker up at the front of the boat gets wrapped around the rig and gets shredded, like it's a mess really quickly, right? Because so, sailing, like, there's two modes of sailing. Everything is super cool, <laughs> disaster, that's it. <laughs> So we're in disaster mode, right? So this boat is like, you know, uncontrollable at this point, and we're, you know, we start doing the stuff that we've got to do. We get out our emergency tiller, so you can hook this big model rod directly up into the top of the rudder, and you can drive it like you know, a tiller. Uh, but the, <laughs> the emergency rudder broke. The emergency tiller broke, like some weld broke, and it just like came apart. So great, that sucked. And then we're there. Well, now what do we do? So my uh, um, boat captain was on the boat uh, with us, so I raced with him, but he's been sailing. His dad was a pro sailor, and he's been a pro sailor for most of his life. And, um, you know, he rigs, he go, crawls down into the, the space where the, all the steering uh, cables and uh, rigging is, and uh, he, you know, basically takes a bunch of uh, blocks, pulleys, and rigs up a solution to, ba to, to make the boat believe that the... It's got two wheels on it that the second wheel is still hooked up to the steering, and then you know we got control of the boat and away we went. Now mm -hmm. it was a mess, mm -hmm. but you know we attacked this problem, came up with a solution. He came up with a solution, uh, and you know we got back underway. We got the boat up where we we're going, and you know life was good. Uh, and you know my daughter was on the boat. And she saw everything fall apart, and then everything come back together, and you know us fix it and get moving again. And I just you know. Those are experiences that are hard to get otherwise to be kind of like, this is a serious situation, but we got a handle on it and we're gonna move mm -hmm. forward, you know? A true emergency, but it, one that's totally manageable with, right. the, with the right staff. Right, yeah, totally. If it had just been me and her, <laughs> maybe, maybe not as great, but you never know. That's the time for the emergency beacon. Right. All right. Well, how do people find you and your company? How do they get in touch with you? Uh, Netography.com is the company. Mm -hmm. uh, finding me, come to RSA. Oh, <laughs> Just oh, kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, my last name at Netography.com. Rush at Netography.com is you know kind of the usual uh, um, way that you can uh, get in contact with me. LinkedIn, obviously, as well. Okay. So great. Well, Marty, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, no problem. It's great. It. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.